Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. There is a place where time stands still. Where nature is harsh and demanding. Where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. And it's Annie for Showreel, taking off one hat, putting on another. And uh, today we are focusing on... Uh, as we always do on Australian films uh, and uh, the moving image uh, and its industry that uh, surrounds it. And today I had a chat with Ian White. He is the director of a documentary that's just out and it's playing at the moment in cinemas. It's called uh, Mutiny in Heaven. And if you are an aficionado of the birthday party, that uh, punk band from the 70s and 80s in uh, uh, Melbourne but had a bigger world impact, um, you'll know that that's one of their tunes. Uh, Mutiny in Heaven, the birthday party is now showing and I had a chat with the director Ian White. Ian White is an award-winning director who has been based in Southeast Asia since 1995 and his uh, uh, work has uh, spanned uh, documentary features and beyond. Uh, he is a fascinating fellow all on his own. So let's have a chat with Ian White. G'day Ian, it's Annie McLaughlin here from 3CR. How are you? I'm good, Annie. Thanks for calling. Yeah, you're okay to have a chat with me now? Absolutely. Yeah, great. I was looking into your history, which is varied and interesting, of course, but I noticed that you were a illustrator, a, a person who did uh, uh, record covers for Mushroom and Polydor uh, during the period of the uh, the rise and rise of the birthday party. And I guess you were, I'm interested in the fact that you're part of the zeitgeist of that period, because so was I. I actually remember seeing Nick the Stripper the first time it was aired on TV, with us all around the TV watching it, and uh, what it meant. And I was interested in uh, finding out why you thought it was such an important thing to investigate to, in a filmic way with this film about the birthday party. Uh, having seen the band perform at the at the ballroom in uh, back in the day, uh, they, they, those shows uh, until now have left a really visceral imprint on my mind. They were just such a phenomenal live band. There was an intensity and an honesty about those shows that you rarely see. You might see heavier bands or faster bands or louder bands today, but I think you'll rarely find a band 
that performed with the same intensity that the birthday party did. So when the opportunity arose to make a film, uh, it was uh, a really easy decision to make that on. Um, there was really no question that I wasn't going to make it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, a no-brainer, as they say. Yeah, yeah, because, I, I mean, having um, lived through that whole period and being actually part of the whole ebb and flow of the cultural um, uh, world of that period, a lot of times the mainstream talk about the 80s in a way that it's like I, I wasn't in the same 80s that they're talking about. So it's really quite a relief to see some films uh, that are documenting things that, were so important at the time uh, and seemed to have escaped the attention of the mainstream. I, I was really fascinated by the way you are a collector of details. I mean, obviously the birthday party is, uh, the whole history is a whole a, a range of things. There's the things that have, you've decided to keep in and things you've decided to keep out. But I had the impression that at a certain point you became completely interested in the characters of the individuals. Yeah, they're all of them are such interesting, uh, dynamic, compelling and charismatic individuals. And I think that the combination of these five people is what made the band what it was. It's definitely a case where the whole was greater than the sum of the parts. Did I get that right? Yeah. <laughs> or have I mangled it? No, no, I think you're right. I think you're completely correct, yeah. I mean, because Nick, Nick, Cave, Nick Cave is like um, hungry for validation and greedy for fame, while Roland S. Howard is actually the poetry of the, of the, of the show, right? Yeah, they all brought something to the band. And I think if any one of them hadn't been in the band, the band, if you take Tracy Pugh out of the birthday party or take Nick Harvey out, it's just not going to be the same band, is it? So it's that unique chemistry between five really distinct individuals. The other good thing about making the film is they're all uh, really lucid, intelligent, uh, thoughtful people. So they had a lot to say and they had a lot of interesting things to say, which is not always the case in a band. Um, well, well, that's so that true. was great as well. Yeah, no, they were that's true. Yeah, and I would, I'd also say that they've remained largely to a degree, they've remained true to the ideals of that time and place as well. There's an integrity there uh, which remains to this day in what they do. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, their um, personal um, freedom uh, and iconoclastic sort of approach to, and the bravery too, I guess, the bravery. Yeah, all of them. I don't think any of them have um, uh, sold out to commercial tastes. They've all just continued doing what they do. Uh, and have not really tr been swayed by uh, trends in popular music or popular culture. They've really stuck to what they do and remained true to that. 
Tell me about um, the making of the film itself, because there's a lot of footage, and I know that people like important people like Roland S. Howard has died, but obviously uh, he thought it was important enough to do interviews, and so you've obviously either done these interviews before he died, or you've got them from somewhere else. The genesis of this film actually began with Roland and his producer, Lindsay Gravina, in the early 2000s, in 2005, 2006. They had an idea that film was going to be, I'm not exactly sure, because I wasn't involved at that stage. But then Roland fell ill and subsequently passed away, so the project was put on hold. And then a couple of years ago, Lindsay called me you know, I wanted to pop by the studio. So I went down and Mick was there and we talked about what could be done with some of this material that had been collected. And Roland's interviews stem from that time. Uh, so at the time Roland did those interviews, he, his time was limited. So he spoke with great candour and honesty to the camera. And I think that's an important part of the film and set the tone for what the film is as well. A lot of band documentaries you see are very heavily controlled and curated by the band, and this couldn't have been further from the truth. I don't think I was ever told once, you can't say this or you can't go there or you can't show that. The band were magnificent in um, their respect for the creative process. Yeah, that's really interesting. Also, well, that that's basically... I love the interviews with Paul Goldman. That was fascinating. And the uh, centrepiece of the uh, Nick De Stripper um, story because that was a really pivotal moment, wasn't it, in their creation story? I think both musically, really pivotal in their creative trajectory... King Inc. and Nick the Stripper, I think, are really where things turned for the band. And I think the clip that uh, Paul and his colleagues put together was also just a landmark in um, a landmark. <laughs> I'm not really sure how to describe that film, that clip. Actually, it's remarkable, and it seemed to warrant playing the whole clip in the film. Um, in fact, one of the things that the band were quite adamant about and I, we were all totally on board with was that we didn't want the music to be in short bites. Coming back again, a lot of band documentaries, there'll be a lot of talking, a lot of talking heads. Then you may only get 10 or 20 seconds of a song and then it's back to more talking. But we really wanted the music to be front and centre and to drive the film. Well, that was great because I, I enjoyed that. I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed seeing the whole clip in on a big screen. That was uh, uh, really interesting to me. The uh, other things um, that uh, were interesting to me were um, the clips that you had inside clubs, wild and woolly pieces. Where did you get those from? Oh, they came from a whole range of... Uh, we really through the net, cast the net far and wide to try and um, unearth whatever we could. Uh, there's been, there were a lot was shot of the band. A lot's been lost because it's 40 years since the band broke up. So a lot's been lost. But coming back to Nick the Stripper, we managed to unearth the original 60 millimeter print 
which had never been seen since it was shot. So what most people are used to looking at is really uh, late generation dubs, which and uh, was mag- magnificent being able to have the original 16 millimeter film scanned, and um, it came up superbly. Yeah, I was going to say uh, that's worth going to see the film just to see that. I have to say. <laughs> Yeah, it was fantastic. It was a, a real a gift to, to unearth uh, the original print because it had been lost and never been seen since. So um, fantastic. And the other the other material came from all over the world, a lot of it which hasn't been seen before, uh, a, a, an enormous amount which hasn't been seen before, and uh, a lot of live recordings too, which, um, which were taken from multi-tracks and... Um, remastered and remixed specifically for the film. Yeah, because, of course, that period of history, I mean, even though there's uh, lots of different uh, format challenges and stuff like that, that whole period of history was all about ordinary people uh, getting their hands on technology, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that's what made it so good. And one of the things that makes the visual palette of the film so rich is that the materials taken everywhere from sort of fifth generation VHS dubs to, you know, pristine 16 millimeter film of gigs, which is um, magnificent. You know, films these days, most films, the production values are really shiny, really commercial. And uh, I, I always think, you know, a film, the aesthetics of a film should be anything you want. If you read a novel, the style to be written in any sort of style, yet films always have uh, a satiric aesthetic to them. So I wanted to take the opportunity to this film, with this film, to make something that was really rough and dirty and hand and had a really handmade look, which again stems back to the era. You know, there were all these, in going through archival materials, I came across all these wonderful textures that don't exist anymore, aerograms, postage stamps, contact sheets, uh, you know, these film leader. These are things that in a digital age that we don't see anymore. And so these, all these things, all these textures and objects inform the visual palette of the film. Yeah, it's great. What I wanted to do was create a world and drop the audience into that world and take them away. I love the fact that they were so blunt about uh, uh, how poxy England was and how their uh, the great um, uh, Australian belief that uh, they were going to make the pinnacle of uh, musical uh, fame by going to England was squashed by their experience. I love that. I think they thought that. Uh, Roland said... Uh, that he, that for some bizarre reason, before they left Australia, they assumed that people in England had a sort of superior taste to Australians. And when, when they arrived, they found that wasn't the case. And most of the band's sole ambition was to appear on top of the pops, which was an anathema to the birthday party. Um, so that I think that was pivotal in them, that just throwing caution to the wind and deciding that they would just continue doing what they wanted to do and really paid very little heed to the 
English music scene of the early 1980s, which at that time was new romantics and people with floppy fringes wearing jodhpurs, which really has nothing to do with the birthday party. No, no, that's exactly right. Um, not, yeah, it's, they be, Australian bands became leaders of the pack. I do remember actually going to uh, Europe and being absolutely uh, amazed at how repulsive I found the rock and roll. Like it was just completely repulsive to me. <laughs> just after the birthday party imploded, 84, early 1984 maybe, seeing... The scientists support the Sister of Mercy, Sisters of Mercy in London, the Lyceum maybe. And I'd gone to see the scientists. I didn't know much about the Sisters of Mercy. And the scientists just demolished the Sisters of Mercy, really. They, they just tore the venue apart, the scientists. And the Sisters of Mercy came on with a drum machine and you know, a very sort of calculated, controlled approach to performance, and it just paled after seeing a scientist said. It's, it's very interesting stuff, I reckon, uh, and it's nice to have a view to it, I'll have to say. Um, your filmmaking, um, uh, arrange, you know, what you've done is uh, really quite interesting. I mean, you've done a feature that made it to... Uh, the Academy Awards, uh, uh, you've uh, done um, a fascinating documentary about uh, uh, hard school uh, heroin um, rehabilitation by Buddhist monks in Thailand. Um, and I guess this film is another version of the same thing, which is uh, really delving into the crevices of people's lives, right? Yeah, someone... As someone pointed out, they said to me, you've covered war zones, opium plantations and refugee camps, and you've managed to revisit all three in this film. (laughs) (laughs) And and in a way, they were right. Well, of course, the drug culture, uh, um, at the time, uh, even in uh, Melbourne, the birthday party's love affair and a couple of other bands' love affair with heroin was always looked at a little bit askance, I'll have to say, because, uh, but they took it on, uh, drug taking uh, on board with a great deal of gusto, didn't they? Yeah, I know when they went to the UK, their very cavalier approach to um, their drug use was a major hindrance in having the London music scene take take them seriously or take uh, any sort of risks with them. I think they were regarded, and perhaps rightly so, as a very unhinged band. And the, so record companies stayed away from them. Uh, stayed away from them. And I think uh, their, their relationship with narcotics, more so than the music, um, was a hindrance to them gaining a foothold in the London music scene, at least for the first six to eight months. After that, I think once their music started to, people started to be able to hear what they were doing and they had the opportunity to gig more, things changed quickly when people realised the power of the band. Um, But yeah, it was... I found the... um 
a little section you had with the reflections of other artists about their performance, really fascinating, the American performers and how they observed this absolutely ballistic new, um, performance on stage. That was fascinating, wasn't it? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to hear. Uh, they, the, the influence of the birthday party went well beyond uh, their their commercial their acceptance in a more commercial world, and I think they were a huge influence on the emerging American post punk and hardcore scene. Um, and having a lot of feedback lately from people like Thurston Moore, David Yao from Scratch Acid, and Jesus Lizard, who've seen the film and responded well to it and have reached out saying what a phenomenal influence the birthday party had, both on them, their bands, and the larger theme within the US. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite fascinating. And I'll just go back to something. Uh, the Suicide Record label, that which was a cynical attempt by the mushroom uh, business to try and kibosh punk, is, uh, was a fascinating... Um, uh, thing uh, in the end, the birthday party had their last word, didn't they? When it came to success and influence, I think Mushroom really understood what punk was at that time, and they were hoping it would be another reiteration of bubblegum pop. Um, that clearly wasn't the case. Birthday party. Um, uh, the, their then manager Keith Glass uh, was was uh, clever enough to be able to get the birthday party out of that or the boys next door as they were then out of their deal with Mushroom and it all ended very amicably. I think the um, I don't think Mushroom really understood what the band were uh, aiming at and and what they were trying to achieve. And um, just a meeting of two different worlds, really. Well, yeah, it was. Um, that commercial world and the punk uh, uh, political stance of the 80s was really, uh, 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 you know, two stark uh, realities that uh, have gone on into the uh, modern world, really, haven't they? Uh, there was a, a lot of discussion within the Melbourne punk scene at the time of bands that had got uh, deals with major labels, whether they're sold out or, you know, whether whether this was a good thing or not, you know. So there was quite a divide, especially amongst the little bands. Uh, you know, there was, I find the, the, the Melbourne little band scene, uh, Primitive Calculators, Essendon Airport, uh, th those bands were really extraordinary and so inventive and experimental and out there. And uh, they really had no, as Mick Harvey said, most of the bands at that scene had absolutely zero expectation that they would be accepted by the Australian music industry. So they just felt they could do whatever they want as they wished, um, which allowed for an enormous amount of freedom. Where are we? 77, 78. Australian music scene was still incredibly driven by Countdown. 
So, you know, to, to, to imagine that you can break into that world is just... Well, you know, it's um, fascinating because uh, I, I actually saw Essendon Airport and um, all those fabulous names like uh, Series Young Insects and stuff like that, you do actually point to the uh, background that uh, the Boys Next Door birthday party came from, this textured musical background. Yeah, uh, a phenomenal scene. And to this day, I think that Melbourne in that period of time was just one of those places where you really want to be uh, a totally unique thing, really nothing to do with the punk scene in London. Probably, I mean, I wasn't in New York, but probably closer to the New York punk scene than the UK punk scene, I'd say. Yeah, I think so too. And I think people were just doing it for themselves, really. That was what it was about. It was about you were allowed, just do it. Stand up, do it. The thing I think made that so unique was there was an enormous amount of cross-pollination, a crossover between musicians, photographers, filmmakers, writers, painters. And uh, a lot of the people from that scene went on to have really significant careers internationally as well, a huge number of them actually. Um, oh yeah, which just is testament, which is testament to how fertile and how incredibly vibrant that scene was. You, you've already mentioned that the film has uh, um, had a react a reaction, a positive reaction from people. Uh, it's showing uh, now in our local cinemas. Are you getting any reaction from here? Uh, yeah, it's just finished. It's just coming to the end of a theatrical run in North America. I think it's played in 58 US cities in theatres. Uh, then it begins its theatrical run. We played it. It played at MIF, obviously, and it played at Adelaide Film Festival last weekend. Uh, the response to the film's been phenomenal wherever it's been, actually. It's been um, fantastic. Is there anything else you want to say? Because I probably hogged up your morning. No, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And um, thank you so much for your uh, enthusiasm and your interest in the film. It's really great. Thank you so much. Thanks, mate. All right. Good on you. Have a good day. And that's it. That was Ian White. And it's about his film Mutiny in Heaven, The Birthday Party. We'll go out with Nick the Stripper. And coming up next is... Published or not.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.